Welcome to First Reading, the Old Testament lectionary podcast for anybody interested in the Hebrew Bible. I'm Rev. Dr. Rachel Wren, Assistant Professor of Biblical Studies at Trinity Lutheran Seminary at Capital University. And I'm Rosie Candethel, PhD candidate at Emory University in Hebrew Bible. This week, we are bringing you preaching tips and tricks on Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, the first reading for the first week of Advent in 2022. And we have a special guest with us this week. That's right. For the book of Isaiah, we thought, why not bring you someone who just wrote a book on the book of Isaiah? <laughs> Dr. David Davidge is Associate Professor in Old Testament Exegesis at the Academy of Leadership and Theology in Umeå, Sweden. He is interested in the diachronic growth of the Psalms and the question of authorship in the ancient Near East, among many other things. He's a prolific author, a good researcher, and a sought-after speaker. If you're interested in more of his work, we recommend his newest book, How Isaiah Became an Author, Prophecy, Authority, and Attribution. We will drop a link to that on our webpage. David, welcome to First Reading. Thank you so much. I'm so honored to be here and glad to be invited. Well, David, welcome. And um, how did you get into studying the Hebrew Bible? And maybe perhaps how did you become interested in Isaiah more particularly? Well, I think in, in some sense, I'm, I'm an accidental biblical scholar because I didn't really plan on, on doing biblical scholarship. Uh, I grew up in a Christian family. Uh, my, my father was a pastor in a, a free church in Sweden. And my mother was a piano teacher. So I started to you know, read the stories of the Old Testament fairly soon as a child uh, and, and also started to play the piano. <laughs> so, so there was quite a long period in my life where I didn't really know what... I wanted to do, uh, whether it was to, you know, go towards being a musician or go towards being, you know, studying the Bible. I did know that I did not want to be a pastor because okay. I'd, I'd seen the, the, the downsides of being a pastor by looking at my father. No, I'm kidding. I did eventually end up being a pastor anyway, but but that's another story. Yeah. Um, no, so actually I, uh, I applied for, you know, both uh, to study music and to study theology, and I was you yeah. know, accepted mm. into the theology studies. So that's really my sort of not so straight and linear way into biblical scholarship. <laughs> well, David, it's just a delight to have you on. Um, why, don't you, why don't we begin by having you read the Isaiah text for mm -hmm. us today? And, and what translation are you going to be pulling from there? I'm going to read from the New Revised Standard Version, uh, and that's my, often my go-to English translation. So Isaiah 2, verses 1 through 5. The word that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the days to come, the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and shall be raised above the hills. All the nations shall stream to it. Many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth instruction and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall arbitrate for many peoples. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against another nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. It's such a beautiful text, and there's so much good there um, for us to mm. get into. Before we really dive into kind of that linguistic exegesis, why don't we talk about your recent work and how that's related to this? You know, we, we're used to talking about Isaiah as a book, um, all of the books really of the Bible. 
But in your recent book, you really took a hard look at what it meant to be an author in ancient times, what that understanding was, and and two different conceptions of authorship that were at play. So can you sort of flesh that out for our preachers? Like what might be helpful to be thinking about in thinking about Isaiah as a book and Isaiah as an author? Mm. That's a good question. I mean, I, I started thinking about these issues quite early on in my scholarly work. But I think as a student, when you start looking, or as a pastor, when you start looking at the biblical narrative, one of the first you know, rev- revelations that you may have is that you know, these people seems to be quite different from us. They're doing mm-hmm. things differently, and they're speaking and thinking differently from us. And then when you continue your studies, you may have a second revelation is that you know, these people are maybe not that different after all. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they seem yeah. to relate to the world in, in, in similar ways. And then you have yeah. these two, you know, realizations, which are both true, that you try to negotiate. In this book, I start by just noting that in our times, we have at least two different author concepts that are in some contrast to each other. We have one, one of them is, is, you know, indebted to the romantic author ideal, where we have this strong emphasis on an author being an originator, a creative genius originating unique works. But I mean, the second, the second part is, is the one we find in literary studies with scholars who are deconstructing or at least decentralizing the author in the interpretive work. We have mm-hmm. French scholars, especially uh, Foucault and Barthes, who, who are speaking of, of, of the author as a function or a text as a, a weave where previous ideas are put into a new form, but the author is not central, but the reader is rather central. So we have these mm-hmm. contrasting notions in our time. And I think much of the the work on Isaiah has been, you know, indebted to this romantic ideal. You you will find in most commentaries they will say something like, up until historical critical research was introduced, Isaiah Ben Amos was regarded as the author. Mm. And my question in this book is that, so what do we actually mean with author then? Mm. Because to me that is a historical contingent term it changes throughout it's not it's not a constant it changes throughout culture so so when i looked at the the ancient material i i thought that i could see not one ancient concept it's not like a modern concept versus an ancient one but we also have this dynamic in the ancient culture so i labeled one of them uh, the mesopotamian author construct or mesopotamian trajectory and the other one is the greek one and just to to briefly rehearse what i think are characteristics of these two when you look at the mesopotamian trajectory you can mm-hmm. see, for one, that most of the literature is anonymous. There are no mm-hmm. authors, you know, uh, transmitted alongside the, the... There are no originators, I would say, transmitted alongside the texts. Mm-hmm. So authorship is not related to intellectual property or, or mm-hmm. authorial intent. Uh, it's rather that they, 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 they can formulate themselves, that they, they have this access to this divine sphere themselves. So why go through this other... Trident. So, so hmm. there's there, there's a, a, a in in some sense a non-hierarchical trident transmission history where where we have these we, we may have a first one but then we have subsequent ones which are equally authoritative. In this logic, then adding a name to a text wouldn't be to say this is where the text originated, but rather to demarcate a, a discourse or a certain text. It's almost mm. like a, a genre marker you know, saying that this is an, an Isaianic discourse or something like that. Then we have the Greek, which is 
functioning with some somewhat differently uh, because here we can see that for one there are not so many anonymous texts. Uh, texts are yeah. regularly you know, related mm -hmm. to authors in the sense of originators. And we can also see that when they comment on texts, they do so by means of referring to what the author may have intended yeah. and try to situate that. And I think the text today is quite interesting in that regard uh, because we have a name and then we have a text that is not necessarily related to the to the person named in the in the yeah. subscription, maybe, yeah. Maybe you could say a little bit more about that, right? Because, so we have, as you say, there's a author that's described here in verse one. And uh, for many of our listeners, they're probably are familiar with the way that we've often talked about Isaiah. We've talked about first Isaiah, second Isaiah, and third Isaiah. Is there a way that might be helpful for us to frame this particular chapter? It's ascribed to this Isaiah, son of Amos, and we actually have maybe more biographical information about this particular prophet than in other prophetic books. Yeah. Maybe help situate our listeners here in this conversation of authorship book um, and just the, the way Isaiah kind of unfolds for us in terms of canon. Yeah, so, so I mean, we have these explicit paratexts, as I would call them, superscriptions uh, in Isaiah 1.1 1, 1 and Isaiah 2.1 and Isaiah 13.1, which seems to relate prophetic you know, material texts, literature to this Isaiah son of Amos. And if we look at the superscription in, in Isaiah 2.1, it literally says the word that Isaiah son of Amos envisioned, the, the Hebrew there is Chazah, yeah. Yeah. So already there is yeah. quite peculiar. How would you envision a yeah. word? You know, yeah. uh, isn't word right. something written or something like that? And and when I looked at these terminology, because the whole of the book is also labeled with the same terminology as a chazon. Uh, yeah. And and if you look at how it is used in the Hebrew Bible, it's interesting to note that it often relates to prophetic, revelatory experiences and not seldom during night time. Uh, so to me, this is an indication that it's a similar author concept, you know, at play here as in the Mesopotamian trajectory, uh, constructing yeah. this Isaiah figure as a, a first one in a, in a longer series mm -hmm. of, of, of chain of, of transmission. And the thing that makes it interesting in this case is that these verses, verses two to five, in Isaiah chapter two are also found in Micah chapter four. Right, and, yes. And they're really similar. So we can, you know, we, we need to assume that it is a literary dependence in some way. And to me, working with this notion of authorship, it, it, it indicates to me that this is a, a piece of prophetic uh, material that has been transmitted without a name before it was attached with the name. And now it has ended up in both an Isaianic discourse and a Micah discourse. Uh, uh, so, so to me, it, it indicates that we have this notion of, of authorships, which is not, I would say that when this superscription was added, it was not added to indicate that this oracle originated with a historical mm -hmm. figure called Isaiah. Because as, as you said, we know, we know, or at least think we know a bit about yeah. Isaiah, depending right, on right. how we... How we use the material, but yeah, but I mean, he is this eighth eighth century prophet, of course. And in the history research, we have a lot of attempts to, especially look at chapters six, seven, and eight, 
as mm. probably the most, you know, original again. Big air uh, quotes there. Yeah, exactly. Uh, the, the German word for 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 one of these theories, Denkschrift, you know, where, where, where a scholar called Budde then then attempted to, to show that this is maybe the original words of this historical prophet. I'm caught by this idea. Um, so this this um, this tradition is found in Micah. It shows mm. up here again in Isaiah, and it is something that carries resonance to today as well. Like if you mm. if you say that, at least in the United States, I don't know in Sweden, but if you say that, you know, beat your swords into plowshares, that's even almost become abstracted from the biblical text, and it's just a common phrase that we use. All of this to say there is something about the power, it seems, of this uh, prophetic oracle or this vision that has lasting power. I mean, it has mm. literally thousands of years become relevant and powerful to multiple different communities. So yeah. maybe we could zero in on the, the text itself for a moment, you know, that, that really powerful verse four. I mean, what, what comes up for you, David, when you're looking at, they shall beat or grind their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks, nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. I, what, mm. what, would, what do you do with those verses? No, it's, a, it's a great question. I mean, this, I, I think the, the, the thing you mentioned about this being a, a, a text that has relevance, not only in one context, yeah. but in many, I think it, it's very well put. I, I usually, when I teach about prophecy in, in, uh, in, in school here in Sweden, in Sweden, I use a, I don't think it translates well into English, but, but, but I use to, to explain that in the Hebrew Bible, the prophecy are, I mean, first and foremost, directed towards the, the time of the prophet often mm -hmm. and using the possible future to create a, some of a change in the present mm -hmm. or something like that. Mm -hmm. Uh, so, so then I, I, I try to explain that prophecies, we, we, we can see and, and explain prophecy as fulfill, fulfillment, you know. Uh, mm -hmm. And often when we speak of fulfillment, we think of a certain point in time. Mm -hmm. But I think that in, in, in these kinds of texts, we have a fulfillment that is ongoing. It's filling up, so nice. to speak. So if we have a glass that is not just poured out and, you know, in one instance, but we're slowly filling it up. Uh, because yeah. I think that many of these prophecies that we have, including this one, we could perhaps sometime pinpoint that, well, perhaps they had this historical context in mind, but it's almost of, always the case that it's some aspects of the text that doesn't really quite fit. And I think that yeah. is the thing that creates this excess of meaning overflowing and and creating this, you know, hope for the future. Because uh, yeah. uh, we have a, a kind of a dissonance here between the actual fulfillment then and what is left unfulfilled mm. and, and creating this forward, you know, motion and, and in prophetic expectation. And yeah. I think this in the verse four here with the with the swords. I mean, the basic imagery I think is a reversal of how things may have happened. You know, when when you have these need to to um, create armies, then you use sometimes these plowshares and and hooks to create the the arms, uh, the, mm. the the weaponry, mm. and, and this is a reversal of, of that idea. And I think it fits into a larger vision of of the ideal Jerusalem or perhaps even the ideal Zion. Yeah. Because when I read these verses, I I can't help as a psalm scholar to hear a lot of psalm yeah. language in here, the Zion theology. Uh, yeah. We have we have psalms like Psalm 
46 and 48 and 76, which you know really share this this imagery, but it is transformed here. That is interesting. If, if we would read uh, some Psalms 48, for example, it starts up with, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, his holy mountain. Beautiful in elevation is the joy of all the earth. Mount Zion, the far north, the city of the great king. We have this you know, idea of, of uh, the mountain that we also have in this, in this text. And in Psalms 46, we have the, the same thing. Uh, about the, the mountain uh, which which will stand fast and in the end of that psalm we have come behold the works of the Lord see what desolation he has brought on the earth he makes war cease to the end of the earth he breaks the bow, bow and, and shatters the spear and burns the shields with fire so we have this vision which is you know in some way ending uh, or resulting in peace <laughs> but in these psalms it's often quite violent Yes. You know, God is actually, yeah. you know, combating. We have this Kampf motif, uh, yeah. as we would say in, in Sweden or German. But we have yeah. this combat of the chaos. Yeah. But in our text here in, in Isaiah, the people are, you know, actually doing this mm. themselves. Mm. Wow. So we have a, both a peaceful transition into peace and actually the result is peace itself. And, uh-huh. and, and, and I would say if, if preaching this text... I think one of the things that I would stress is that it, in the context of this passage, it cannot be separated from the idea of instruction, the Torah yeah. of Adonai being preached. Yeah. It's, it's, not, it's not separate from it, but it, it's derived from it or linked to it. Uh, yeah. uh, because it's only when Jerusalem is you know, remodeled or reshaped or recreated into this uh, ideal state that also peace will be enabled because it it seems in this text that the peace is dependent on God being God of the whole world. Right. Because yeah, that's right. why it's not yeah. need. They don't have to fight themselves anymore. These nations, which seems to still exist in this text, but they come instead to Jerusalem and the, the divine Lord with, with, will judge and... and uh, his, his wisdom will be the one guiding their, their paths and ways uh, and all of these metaphors. So one thing that uh, preachers might be thinking about is this liturgical moment, right? So we're in the first week of Advent. And as you said, there's this um, incredibly provocative image of peace. Um, and many preachers might be gravitating toward a message that c- kind of imagines this picture of peace. Could you fill this out? Um, this is one vision of peace, as you said, one in which mm. God is supreme and all other nations mm. are streaming toward that central teaching and instruction. But there are other images of peace, uh, you know, one which maybe uh, holds out the idea of mutuality, uh, equality. That's not quite the image that um, Isaiah is casting here, right? So maybe yeah. we could fill out this picture of both peace as a sort of liberal, uh, progressive idea that we kind of hold today. And the kind of peace that's actually being envisioned here in Isaiah, and maybe kind of holding out both the challenge and the instruction that's available in this first week of Advent. Yeah, I think also that that uh, one aspect then when we think about peace in this context is that it would probably have been quite provocative hmm. if we if we think of 
a probable context in the in the time of Isaiah ben Amos. Uh, uh, some of the some some of the scholars would relate this to to the the first king mentioned Uzzah, which we know there was quite a pros prosperous time, and he was uh, also you know building this mm. strong army. Um, these verses then, in its context in Isaiah, they fall right after quite a severe, you know, judgment message, which yeah. emphasizes the sinfulness of the people. And, and it's followed by the same. So it's like in this world, chaotic world, where people are really not, you know, doing what they should be doing, according to Isaiah, there's still this vision of peace that is available to the people of God. And I think here is where verse five is, is so central then for if, you know, yeah. if, if preaching this verse, because the, the prophet provides this vision of an ideal Israel, ideal Zion, ideal Jerusalem, which will have this movement to and from Zion where God is, you know, the king. Mm. And it ends up with an exhortation for the people, the house of Jacob, to, to walk mm -hmm. in the light of the Lord. The vision always serves the purpose of ethical living, so to speak. The vision serves the purpose of transforming the behavior of the people in the present. I mean, I mean, there are many different visions or versions of what peace can entail. And we know that some of these prophetic oracles are actually criticizing prophets, proclaiming peace where there shouldn't be yeah, peace, right, know, peace right. on false premises. Well, and that's perhaps one of the challenges of preaching this text, at least in the United States, where, um, you know, I think two things that are used synonymously here that perhaps shouldn't be is peace and prosperity. Uh, because oftentimes right. prosperity comes at the expense of peace for all. Right. You know, at the same time, you have people who still experience this chaos and this discord in their lives and are longing for a vision of personal peace, even if the lifestyle that we live as the super wealthy denies that sort of peace or that sort of thriving to other people of lesser status or lesser wealth. So it's a funny mm. double-edged sword where it's like the people sitting in the pews in some of these congregations need both this message of peace and this message of, hey, <laughs> is the life that you're living one that is walking in the light of the Lord such that that peace extends to others right. as well, which is what this, you know, this passage envisions. Right. So, so maybe that's kind of our first preaching pitfall too, is mm. why do you say peace, peace when there is no peace? Exactly. I fell down this rabbit hole when I was looking at this verse and, and actually because of the reception history that you're even referencing here, where this beating the swords into plowshares have been used rhetorically in American politics. Um, yeah. And so I saw this reference that this sculpture at the United Nations in New York um, is there with this particular inscription um, to it. And the history behind it is kind of interesting because apparently this um, statue that's entitled Beating Our Swords into Plowshares uh, was given as a gift from the USSR to the United States in 1959 mm. um, and placed in front of the UN, right? And so with the context of Cold War and then what we're looking at today, it just seems sort of um, mind-boggling and also interesting that this vision should be cast in the midst of such deep structures of conflict. And as mm. you say, 
none of it's resolved, but the vision yeah. kind of remains and continues to inspire in some way. And so peacekeeping efforts, I mean, often use this very image, which is kind of ironic and interesting. And I wonder if somebody out there wants to write an article about it. But I also <laughs> saw it was in Michael Jackson's is one of the lyrics in Heal the World is beating <laughs> our swords into plowshares. So it's, it's, it's infected. Yeah. Um, it's certainly... It, it is certainly drawn our imagination about a way to end war is that we sort of reimagine these instruments of violence into yeah. instruments of agriculture and, you know, growing things and new life. Mm -hmm. um, mm. And so, I, you know, I wonder if we could have a larger conversation when we think about current events and what preachers might be thinking about for their congregations. As we look at peace in this world, where do we see that implemented? Where do we see this idea of swords being beaten into more constructive um, mm. instruments of help and nourishment and flourishing for our people. Mm -hmm. As a preaching angle, you mean, Rosie? Yeah, I think that's yeah. what I, I'm thinking. Because yeah. both the pitfalls existent there, because I, there's an irony to casting yeah. a vision of peace right. in the midst of circumstances mm. of war. But the reality of human life is we're never going to be in a situation of you know true peace. So mm. it's always relevant to mm. recast what and redefine what what is it what is peace you know uh, what mm. is it mm. i think it's a great question I, I was thinking about i mean i'm i'm in this swedish context where we, where uh, i mean we can when when i was i was thinking about preaching this text um in a swedish context we would have to first just remind ourselves we haven't been in military conflict for 200 years wow but now things have really changed in Ukraine and the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And, and, and then it strikes me that texts like these could be both immensely provocative and mm. immensely encouraging at the same time. Mm. Because we, if, if we would in some way, you know, generalizing and say that, okay, there, there may be similarities in what the Ukrainian people are experiencing and what the Israelites mm. were experiencing during these times of conflicts, uh, which Isaiah addresses in certain ways. We have this syria phrenetic conflict and we have the, the Assyrian, you know, mm -hmm. destruction of, of the Northern Kingdom. And then we have the exile, you know, and, mm. and all of these, you know, memories of trauma and war uh, uh, must have been quite, you know, present when they were also pondering on yeah. texts like these that we have today. Yeah. Because what, what, what kind of hope is it to say, lay down your arms in the midst mm. of a conflict, right? It's wow. very counterintuitive. Wow. But then I think that that's maybe one of the you know, most vital keys that you know, having this vision given to you models something about how to be living a faithful life. Yeah. Because the question is also wow. always faithful to what? You know, faithful mm. to this vision where we try to arrange or align our lives towards a future where this will not be the means of power. This will not yeah. be the means wow. of, you know, enforcing one's will upon another. Of salvation, know. right? Of <laughs> salvation, really. Yeah. Yeah. But the imagery here is quite interesting that this faithful towards this vision, this life faithful towards this vision is what constitutes also being a light to other people. Because you can see that this idea yeah. is picked up later in Isaiah, where the people is supposed to be this light to others, and the servant is supposed to be this light, and you know. I, I love that idea of, of really honoring the 
the context of this as talking about war and saying, mm. so preachers, where do you see war right now? And mm. and then preaching on Ukraine and really continuing mm. to flesh out maybe, like you said, lifting up the way that the church there is is sort of living out this vision of walking in instruction, walking in mm. light, and still extending peace however they can, even in the midst mm. of a conflict. That's really, really beautiful. Yeah. Rosie, do you have thoughts on preaching angles that you might suggest for preachers? I mean, I've really, um, I've really actually benefited from this conversation on on peace and its many different aspects. Not, mm. I mean, we've sort of dwelt more on the international aspect and kind of the external idea of peace mm. being uh, maybe freedom from uh, active war. But there are so many different dimensions to peace as I as I think about um, interpersonal yeah. conflict. Um, yeah. And just uh, within my own heart, within my own soul, within my own life. Um, and so, you know, kind of thinking about both the, the violence that I participate in um, mm. on a more personal level. So, I mean, I, th I think if preachers are thinking about peace and its different aspects um, yeah. and it's pro the provocative idea of of casting uh, an image of peace in a world of of real violence, you know, yeah. America grapples with um, gun violence. We're in the middle of a political battle in the midterms here as we're recording this battle. podcast. Interesting word right. choice. Yeah. Battle, right? I mean, yeah. Um, yeah. and battle can be visioned in lots of different ways, although yeah. America's not engaged physically uh, in international war. Um, we are battling one another in ways, mm -hmm. um, you know, particularly at this moment where mm -hmm. uh thinking about peace as a multidimensional uh, aspect yeah. of our, of our daily lives. You know, how do we draw yeah. upon this peace? Um, mm -hmm. that, that's what I've been thinking about as mm -hmm. I think about this mm -hmm. passage and that combined with this idea of light, like what, what is this light that we live by? What is the, mm -hmm. what is the light in the midst of, of that darkness that we might hold? And Advent has so many opportunities to reflect on light, um, in the midst yeah. of darkness. So both of those yeah. images, this, I mean, five verses, but you can see why both Micah and Isa, Isaiah are, are picking up and saying, let's say some more about this. Exactly. Well, and I, I think that's that's where my mind went, first of all, for um, maybe not necessarily preaching angle, but just a really important preaching tip. David, this idea of ongoing fulfillment of prophecy. Mm -hmm. I think preachers often yeah. feel like when they get to Advent, they, they have to choose either between saying, no, 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 this this was only directed towards one time period, so the fulfillment was in that historical moment, or mm -hmm. the fulfillment is Jesus. You know, right. it's like those right. are the only two options. Yeah. But for you to give this, you know, this beautiful idea of the excess of meaning that it's a mm. that it's an ongoing fulfillment, uh, an excess of meaning that overflows and then creates hope for the future. So it's like mm. ripples that that pick up hope the farther into the future they go which I think is a really beautiful way to take this Isaiah text and talk about it for our time frame without being, mm. you know, supersessionist, which I think right. none of our preachers want to be, but it seems right. like there's those two ditches they're always um, worried about falling into. Um, so I, I think that's a, that's a great preaching tip. Uh, I fully agree with what both of you said about peace, the uh, provocative nature of peace, the evocative nature of peace, the way mm. it can both like, repel us and draw us at the same time. And I, you know, I think that could be a really, if, if done gently, that could be a really wonderful sermon that could both give comfort and open eyes at the same time. Um, and then I, I'm just fascinated by this idea that you said, David, about 
what does it mean to lay down arms in the midst of a conflict? You know, mm. everywhere from Ukraine to Rosie, as you were mentioning, our personal lives. Like when you are in battle with someone, what does it look like to lay down arms in the midst of that battle? And then what becomes possible because you're turning your sword into a plowshare? You know, that's just a just some some really beautiful stuff there. So so unfortunately, while we could keep going, I think for hours that we probably should bring it to a close here. David, thank you so much for being here. This has just been a pleasure to have you on. So thanks for all of your insights and wisdom. Thank you for having me. It's been real joy. Wonderful. Remember, folks, you can find more of these great conversations at firstreadingpodcast.com. You can subscribe to our podcast wherever you get your podcast fix. On our website, you can find our merchandise page and a PayPal donation button, which we would be very appreciative if you would push. Thanks to all of you for listening. Thanks to Blue Dot Sessions and Tim McNinch for our music. Until next time, I'm Rachel Wren. And I'm Rosie Candethal. Have a great week.